Guys, I'm really into things that add more convenience to my life. It's even better when it also comes with safety in a high quality package. I'm talking about my Eufy Video Lock. I'm still loving this thing. I love this thing so much that I'd like to invest in the company. I am so impressed with this product that I'm willing to back it. And if anyone out there knows how I can do it, please reach out. You gotta check it out for yourself. I'll probably do a quick social post, but for now, just search UV Video Lock. Do it online. It's a three-in-one smart lock, 2K camera with an audio and doorbell. It's easy to install. It has fingerprint recognition, so I don't even have to remember a code. I can control it all in an app, which again, the convenience is such a big plus for me. We are always on the go, and being able to monitor our home on the road is such a nice option. Not only that, I don't have to rush to the door if the doorbell rings. I can either open the door or ignore whoever's at the door by vetting them through the app. There is no monthly fees for security video storage. The battery is rechargeable, and each charge lasts about four months. This UV lock is fantastic, and I highly recommend it. Search Eufy Video Lock online. That's Eufy, E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com backslash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your front door. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, guys, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly on to you. I haven't skipped a beat using Mint Mobile services. I have a great service even when I'm traveling for over less than 70% of what I was paying before. Listen to Uncle Chael and say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and Bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash chael. That's mintmobile.com slash chael. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash chael. $45 upfront payment required. That's equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. What's happening, guys? Happy Wednesday. And thank you for joining another special episode of Your Welcome. You know, I really hope you guys enjoyed the special Sunday edition of the show. We're going to try and do that after all of the pay-per-views. As for today's episode, I'm going to continue to talk about UFC 274 and all of its fallout, 
Plus, what the future holds in store for the likes of Tony Ferguson, Rose Namajunas, Conor McGregor, and of course, the former lightweight champion Charles Oliveira. Let's begin there. Charles Oliveira, what do you do now? It's very interesting considering Oliveira, who was the champion and did not lose, is no longer the champion. Like, that's almost a riddle. If it wasn't us, if it wasn't people that understood what that meant, they'd think you were asking them a trick question. They'd think that you misspoke. Yeah, Charles Oliveira was the champion on Saturday, and he had a fight. He's not the champion anymore. Oh, my goodness, he lost. That sounds like an upset. I've heard of Charles Oliveira. No, he actually won. They'd think that you said something that you didn't mean to say. But what do you do now? Supposedly, I can't confirm it, supposedly... There's an organizational rule that in this exact situation, meaning the champion misses weight, the contest goes on, and the champion wins. There is supposedly a rule that says, a policy, that that person, in this case who's Charles Oliveira, will automatically be one half of the title fight of the vacated title that he vacated even though he didn't lose. You guys understand what I'm trying to say here, that Charles Oliveira's next fight will be for the championship, or better said, the next time that they contest the championship, Charles Oliveira will be part of it. Okay, great. Against two, none of us disagree with that, aside from the rule. None of us disagree with that. We fully understand that. Against two. And it does open a discussion up, I think. I think it opens the conversation of Conor McGregor, just by example. I think it opens a conversation of redoing Michael Chandler, just by example. But recent history says that Justin Gaethje also should be considered for that match. By recent history, I'm just talking about Figueredo versus Benavides. Exact same scenario. I would suppose that the decision makers looked at it and go, look, if we're going to give Figueredo the reward of being one part of the championship match. We can't reward the offender if we don't also re uh, reward the victim. So they move Benavides up. Now, that doesn't mean that that's the way that you have to do it. I've heard a lot of people say that. Well, there's a precedent set. I don't know about that. There is an event that happened. Does that set precedence? Or do you learn from that to say the scale and the violation thereof did not perfect or affect the performance, apparently, at least in that situation. Do you bring Gaethje along? That's what I'm asking you guys, because I don't despise that idea, I must tell you. From an X's and O's standpoint, like if any part of your lion eyes tell you that Justin Gaethje just got his ass kicked or Justin Gaethje got dominated or Justin Gaethje got overwhelmed, if any part of your lion eyes tell you that, you need to go watch the match. Go rewatch the match. That hand that Oliveira landed that put Justin down, it was the most impressive part of the night. Because when's the last time you've seen anybody, no matter how hard they hit Justin Gaethje, sit him down? When's the last time you've seen Oliveira, regardless of the opponent, put somebody down in the very first round? You might be able to answer that question. You might be able to answer both of them. But I'm right when I suggest, when's the last time you saw it? It's not what anybody predicted. And things unravel very quickly, right? When something goes from bad, it goes to worse in a hurry, particularly inside of the octagon. So that entire sequence was predicated on something that most of us did not predict would happen, which is within the first round, Oliver is going to hit Gaethje and put him down. It's very interesting. 
I mean, let's rewind the tape here. If you go start the fight again, Charles gets Justin's back. You probably are going to bet that Charles is going to win. Charles gets a rear naked choke. Is he going to finish it? You're probably going to say yes. But if we redo that fight and we say the punch never happened and never put themselves in that position, what would have happened that night? Do we at a minimum see a second round? Do we at a minimum see a fifth round? I mean, it turns into a very different contest. Everything does. I'm only suggesting for, I don't despise the idea of Justin Gaethje going right into that. Justin Gaethje is going to have to call for it. He's going to have to talk about publicly what I just said of, hey, look, forget about the choke. Forget about me getting out scrambled. Dude hit me with a hard shot. I'm trying to collect myself. Next thing I know, champion of the world's on my back. He's going to have to help us with that argument. But it it is one of those things. If we know that Oliver is going to go fight for the belt, I mean, look, this is such a distant memory. This went from a community being upset with Oliver. How could you do it? And how could you disrespect the Ford? And how could you not break a rule? It went from that to, my God, give him his belt back. Just give it back to him. Dana White talked about the way, hey, we're going to pay him and we're going to take care of him. And yes, he's going to go fight for the belt. And this guy's awesome. And everybody thinks he's champion. Like, I mean, he got his acclaim. It was one of those remarkable performances that I have to question was even his best. As great as he looked, I do have to question that. How could have he been at his best? How could a guy that was just stripped of a championship, how could a guy that was loved and now everybody's booing him, upset with him, like how with just that mental approach, could you go out there and be your sharpest and your best? So I'm going to submit for you that he wasn't. And he still did that? I mean, right, there's performances where when it's done, regardless of the outcome, you still got to sit back and go, just how good is that guy? Like, just how good is Charles Oliveira that on an off night in enemy territory, Justin Gaethje's home state, and he goes out and does something like that? It's really remarkable. Who are you going to bring in with him? I mean, 55 is really being looked at right now. I will tell you, as it pertains to 155 pounds, Dan Hooker has never been more sought after. Right? I know that Dan Hooker is on the short list of names for Conor McGregor's return. I also personally believe, and this can change very quickly, I personally believe he's leading in the candidates for Conor McGregor's return. All right, great, big fight. I don't know if I could submit for you a match that would be more fun to watch and more compelling in terms of predicting prior to the fight who's going to win and why than Dan Hooker versus Tony Ferguson. Now, I woke up this morning to a message. Very, very good source that told me Nate Diaz versus Michael Chandler is done. I'm going to leave my source's name out. He wouldn't mind if I came and told you guys, but I'm going to leave it out because I don't think he's right. I do not think that that's right, but if you are to look at what Michael Chandler said on Saturday, if you want to break that down like poetry, and you want to really try to figure out the meaning aside from the words, which in poetry, it does have meaning aside from the words, when Chandler talked about Conor McGregor, that could be interpreted in a couple of ways. First off, he wants Connor. Okay, great. We, we've got it. He said that before. And second, he's hedging his bet. So that if Connor and or company came back and said, well, we do it, you know, but Connor's next fight is going to be at 170. He's already gotten ahead of it, said I'll go there too. But if you want to interpret what he said, it sounds as though Michael Chandler is saying for you, for a big fight, I will leave this weight class and I'll go to that one which is where you could see a little bit of room to the Nate Diaz thing. I'm not ready to predict that for you. My source is very strong. I believe that my source does believe it's true, and I believe that he was told it in a way that he thought he was getting inside information. I don't know that I buy it. I don't know that Chandler is going to leave and go up to 170, and that creates a whole plethora 
of issues. As soon as you leave your division, even if you think selfishly for you, well, it's great and it's for the better good and it's for one one night only, it, it messes with everything. What's the point? What are you going to do when you get there? What happens if that opponent that you agreed to fight pulls out and the show must go on and they insert somebody else and then you try to come back and go, well, I'm not going to fight him. I'm not even in that weight class. Well, you were a second ago. What are you, a bully? You only go places you think you can win, right? I mean, it's one of those things. It gets really sensitive really fast. So you guys are probably going to hear this rumor before you hear from me. This is going to catch on to the interwebs that it's going to be Nate Diaz versus Michael Chandler. I'm here to tell you, I'm light on the idea. I'm confident that Nate is going to fight at 170. He and Chandler's fun and all of that stuff. But I think Nate's going to fight another 70-pounder. And I think that 70-pounder, for better or worse, is going to take the leap against Diaz to hope that if he's still here remaining, win or lose, that he at least affects his career, at least affects something within the... The rankings. And I also think it's very important, personal, just Chael's talk here, that Chandler does stay with it 155. There is a number of scenarios, all the way down to right this moment, that Michael Chandler could step in there with Oliver in a rematch right this moment. I would not bet on that. I would not predict that for you. But they do pay musical chairs down there with that championship. And weird things happen really fast, right? I mean, the guy that was the champion a week ago is no longer the champion. Like, weird things happen within this sport. A title that was set to be defended, the match went on, but the title was vacated and nobody got the strap. Like, weird things happen within this sport. I think Chandler's a very meaningful character. I think he's a very meaningful personality. His skills speak for themselves. I think he's championship quality. I think Michael Chandler is likely to see a championship match again, even if it's not immediate. And if he leaves the division, it creates a little bit of a problem of how do we do that. So a lot of moving parts at 155. A lot of interesting things at 155. I will never cease to be let down, and I'll never cease to be disappointed, though I should cease from being surprised. An opportunity for two people to fight for a championship has now presented itself. We're told somewhere that Oliveira gets one of those spots. Nobody is yet to prove that, by the way. We know for sure at least one other guy gets to be pulled into that. And I have not heard a single 55-pounder, and I do mean not one, say it should be them. So sticking with Oliveira, I can't stop thinking about what happened last Friday between Charlie Olives and the scale. And I want to bring you some of my thoughts today. All right, guys, two questions for you. Very sincere. If you have an answer, leave it for me. Two things happened at the post-fight press conference. I saw them both, but understand it from my perspective. I watched the post-fight press conference via ESPN MMA's Twitter page. Now, Twitter is roughly, it's like 11 seconds. So my point to you is I missed two things. If these were elaborated on, you got to tell me what the answer was. First off, Dana had said, we're going to hire a security guard to man the scale moving forward. Okay, great. Tell me more. Tell me what that, that was about. There was no part of the Ferguson weight debacle that had any even rumor or speculation to a tampered scale. Nobody said that the official scale was tampered with. Now, it is very interesting. I know that you think we're splitting hairs here, but we're not. It's meaningful. If the UFC were to hire somebody to watch the scale, that now means that the UFC is in charge of the scale. 
That is the potential. And I could lay out five different scenarios for you, of which somewhere over time, even if it's 100 years from now, will play out. That would open up a massive potential. Whoever is in charge of the weigh-in is who needs to be in charge of the scale, even if it means hiring security for it, which is the commission, period. It's got to be that way. For a number of different reasons, it's got to be that way. Now, guys, I wasn't in Arizona. I didn't see this firsthand. So I don't come to you with a level of evidence. My belief is, based on experiences that I had in the past, nobody gets to touch the official scale. And the official scale will even sit out in the open, right? I mean, don't forget a show was going on. You're going to bring the people in at some point. You're going to have security guards and you're going to have music and you're going to have lights and you're going to have Joe Rogan or John Amber. I mean, it's a show. It's a production. That scale will sit there and it's untouched. And everybody who's weighing in would like to go get on that scale. They would just like an assurance. And to have a scale that's a half a pound off or a quarter pound off or tenths off or a number of grams or kilograms, any way that you want to do the metric system is very common. From the check scale, won't say what your personal scale said. By the way, you happened down into the health club and they happen to have the scale. I've been on three scales and I got three different answers, which to the colloquial to you guys, so what? I got a really good idea of what I weigh. In this sport, right, there's only a couple of walks of life where you get weighed in before you're allowed to go do your job. Can you imagine how incredibly uncommon this is, but you also understand why it's extremely important. Like, there was people that gave Charles Oliveira a hard time and said, well, he had an hour and he couldn't lose half a pound. Guys, this was never about Charles Oliveira losing a half a pound. You're wording it wrong. This was about Charles Oliveira losing another half a pound. So I just want the context. I just want the context of that statement. Am I wrong with my premise? Is there a story going around that I don't know about that the official scale was tampered with? I have literally never heard that in any fashion. And the commissions do literally put somebody there after the scale is set up and calibrated on the spot to stop anybody from coming near it. Nobody gets to check. Nobody gets to test it. And I've even told hard luck stories to the guy. Oh man, hey, I got to know what I weigh. You're completely dehydrated. It's one of the most uncomfortable things that you'll ever have in life. And you can't just happen upon dehydration. You have to want and be disciplined to be dehydrated. It's, it's an incredibly damning experience, which that gram does matter. You will either go in the back and you will take an ice cube and put it in your mouth that will soothe you in your absolute worst moment for five minutes, or you will not. Because it's a really hard thing to relate to. I don't know that I have the rhetorical skills to get anybody to understand the discomforts and the mental games that happen to a person while being severely dehydrated. So at any rate, I do make a fair point. There is a very fine line. Whoever's going to man that scale has now taken responsibility for the scale. And I think you want to be real careful making sure that's you. So if there was some context, share it with me. Another thing, most interesting thing Dana said, but again, I get to see it for 11 seconds. They were talking about Islam versus Benny. And someone asked Dana straight up, are you still making that fight? Dana's response straight up was, I plan to, but Joe Rogan just grabbed me and told me not to. It cut out. I didn't get anything else. So that's my second question. I have to imagine whoever asked the question followed up, but I don't have the answer. Why did Joe Rogan, why did Joe Rogan say that? 
was that brought forward? Has anybody asked Joe about this? Do you guys have an answer? If we don't, do we just have to guess? Who do you, who do you think? Who do you think Joe is speaking up on behalf of? Is Joe saying don't put those guys against each other because one guy is hurt? Maybe. Is Joe saying don't put those guys together because we need one of those guys to go and do and then fill in the blank? Don't have these two studs. Like, by the way, that is the most competitive and hardest match currently booked at 155 pounds. If you were just going to throw a belt in there because you got a vacated belt, people on the inside, us, not the outsiders, but the insiders would go, well, that's the match. Of course, that's the match. You, you don't even have the ability within the rankings to get a, a bout sheet and bring two guys together that could be more competitive on paper than that one with two higher ranked guys or two guys on more of a roll. Like it's one of those things. So unless somebody is injured and Joe has inside information and he's saying, hey, don't put this guy forward, it would lean you to let's use one of those guys and let's use it for a title opportunity, which would be really interesting. Islam, for sure, versus Charles Oliveira is a fantastically interesting match. And the same thing goes with Benny. But as much as you need championship matches, and as much as you get bit by the seduction of a title fight, you have to have number one contenders matches, too. You have to have ranking matches, too. They are of different significance, but they are all of equal importance in and of themselves. I want to see Darush versus Benny. I will fully acknowledge the winner, number one contender, at least within my mind. But Joe Rogan made the comment to Dana. What was the comment predicated on? Now, if you watched UFC 274, you heard both Michael Chandler and Charles Oliveira call out Conor McGregor. We're still not sure when Connor will return, but let's do some speculating. There's not a day that goes by that I don't get asked something about Connor McGregor. And one of the brilliant things that Connor does is to give us no information while staying engaged. Most guys that give no information go bury their head in the stand. They don't return their phone calls. They don't utilize social media. They don't give interviews. Connor's different. Connor's extremely active on social media while giving you no information, right? I mean, I get what Connor would do, and I get it that the speculation, and I get that if we all come and we hypothesize, like that creates a conversation. No conversation is a great starting point to create a conversation, and then somebody else is going to say something, then you're going to have to retort them, and then you're going to go back and forth, and eventually the answer is going to come out, and one of you gets to say, I told you so. I'm just getting to the point where I need something. And it only has to be little. By example, here was a clue that we had. I'm backing up, but here was a clue that we had once upon a time, known as two weeks ago. Conor McGregor was going to come back in the summertime. Okay, great. So you get the calendar out, and you look at the cards that are announced, and you happen to notice that that's International Fight Week. And so then you go over to Nate Diaz's Instagram account, and it happens to show him training and looking like he's in pretty good shape, and you think that you've uncovered something. And right when you think you've uncovered something, it then gets revealed to us, Conor McGregor's out until the fall. So then you got to go back and do all of your detective work again. And when I tell you I just need something within Conor McGregor, return date I don't have to have. Because I can fully understand in that situation where you wouldn't know. The fighter's never going to return at the right time. 
in the fighter's mind, the right time is as soon as possible. As soon as I can humanly do this and be cleared, that's when I'm coming back. Okay. But we don't know when that is. You're dealing with an injury. You're dealing with assessments. You're dealing with your psychological approach, aside from the physicality of it. So I don't have to know that one. The weight class is tough. One thing that Conor McGregor said over the weekend, Michael Chandler called him out. Conor took to Twitter and said, I could see this fight happening. I do believe that somewhere along the way, we're going to fight. Great job to Michael Chandler on another barn burner. So we know for sure Conor's not fighting Michael Chandler. We could absolutely wipe that. that there could no be no clearer text in Conor's speak that he's not fighting Michael Chandler next. Okay. Then I get hit with a rumor that Chandler is going to go to 55 and Chandler is going to fight Nate Diaz. I'm extremely light on that. Even if it comes to fruition, I'm very light on the information that I have now. Because that would have been a knee-jerk reaction of which the UFC is extremely well known not to make. That would have been an announcement that came out after the day that you have all of your market on you, known as a post-fight press conference. Not to mention that fight at a weight class Chandler's yet to compete at at 170 would have to get done, agreed to, and signed off on on a Sunday, which is travel day. So all of that would have had to get done. The knee-jerk reaction, the spring in to action mode, the get a hold of everybody to get the agreements on a day that Michael Chandler is boarding a plane in Arizona and headed home. I just, I don't believe it. I don't think that that's true. I know he's not going to be fighting Connor because of Connor's response, but I need something on Connor. And the idea of Connor taking on Poirier and or Nate Diaz, I'm a buyer on that. I do believe at a minimum, whether it happens or not, those discussions will at least be brought up and exhausted until we move on to the next option. But if those fights are going to take place at 170 pounds, which is a strong belief that Connor is going to return to 170. If that's going to happen, he's going to go 170. Why in the hell not just go against Usman? I mean, in all fairness, why not just go against George Mosvidal? The entire reason Connor ever touched down at welterweight is predicated on a comment Dana White made to TMZ directly about Masvidal being too big for Connor McGregor. I mean, right, if, if we're just, if we're going to do it, let's just get on with it. Nobody's getting any younger. Why wouldn't we just do that fight? So it does create a conversation. And I don't think that I have less information than the UFC. I do not believe that Connor has spoken clearly to them and everybody's just kept it really tight. I don't think the UFC knows fully when Connor's going to come back. There's a working assumption that it's no longer summer and we've kicked the can to the fall, but that doesn't mean he comes back in the fall. That means he doesn't come back prior to the fall. That's what that statement means. And I don't think that the UFC has been told clearly by Connor what weight he's coming back at. I think that it's all speculative, and I think that that's very good for Connor. I'm just sharing with you for me personally. I'm running low on what to talk about, which used to create a conversation for him, but now I'm, I'm narrowed down. I got to have some insight here. I got to know if we're narrowed down to five guys. If we're narrowed down to three guys, that'd be really great. I could live with if we have a weight class. 
And I'm not sold on the idea it's not going to be for a championship. I mean, I do think that this stuff with Charles Oliveira changes everything. There's three, four, five guys I could tell you at the absolute top. Three, four, five guys at the absolute top of 155 pounds. And if Charles Oliveira was announced he would be fighting them today, you would have a minimum of three to one odds favoring Oliveira. I am very strong in telling you Oliveira versus McGregor will never, including at its most lopsided point, surpass two and a half to one, favoring Oliveira. Oliveira will be the fight going into that. But the X's and O's of McGregor versus Oliveira, it's one of those really interesting matchups. It is highly unlikely to go the distance. Charles Oliveira has been shown to get hit, and he's also been shown to fall down when he gets hit. Conor McGregor is not only real good at hitting, he's going to do it from a southpaw stance. Like, I'm just saying, it's really interesting. As far as the matchup goes, as, as far as like what would actually happen, as much as you want to dismiss that ahead of time, say Conor shouldn't be able to walk into a time, all these different things that you want to say, if it did happen, you wouldn't be positive who is going to win. So I'm just open to this train of thought, but I am getting to the point, I got to get narrowed down somewhere. And I do think for, for Dustin... And Nate, if they're waiting or dangling on some kind of Connor carrot, it seems like maybe those guys should just find each other. And I know that's been discussed. I don't think it's being discussed enough. Both of them have activated their troops on social media at some point. But then both of them is like a fire extinguisher. All of a sudden it hits Diaz and he quits talking about Dustin. And then the same extinguisher hits Dustin and he quits talking about Nate. I feel like that's the one and nobody ever got in the way of it. Nobody in the media ever said, I don't want to see that fight. No fan said, I don't want to see that fight. No athlete, no trainer, nobody within the organization. Nobody has ever done anything that I've witnessed that would make two guys that want to find one another stop. So what's that have to do with Connor? We're back at square one. I don't know. But I'm getting to the point where I need a clue. Just one. But I knew it. I do need a definitive clue in what direction McGregor's headed. Okay, so let's transition to some of the other storylines coming out of the big pay-per-view. In a few minutes, I'm going to tell you about the future of Tony Ferguson. But before that, let's focus on the UFC strawweight division. Rose versus Carla, what do you do now? Right? I mean, it's one of these things that the problem will never go away. There will never be a press conference where Dana White won't be asked that specific questions. Insert athlete's name. What happens now? And Dana has to respond the same. Every, let's see what happens. But it's very relevant. Like, there's things when the press conference happens, information-wise, that you don't yet have. Such as, is said athlete hurt? Is Are both of these athletes okay? Like, there's reasons you just can't go and make something in that moment. But Carla versus Rose... You always want to see somebody get paid back. If somebody does something in the sport, you want them to be rewarded. Not only are they setting a tone, and not only are they attempting to provide leadership, but someday they would like that tone and that leadership to be shown to them should they need it. I'm talking about Rose here, guys. Rose goes out. She beats Joanna. She beats her quickly and handily, which is instantly explained as an upset. Instantly explained as she got lucky. Instantly accepted that Rose caught Ioana. 
Now, Ioana's a tough night out any way you want to do it, any weight class that you want to do it in. So if you're trying to have a victorious moment and you're trying to celebrate, you got your family, you got your right, you got this real small circle, and you've got a world championship, right? This incredible moment in any athlete's life. That celebration is going to quickly fizzle. I mean, it's going to be like the music stops when you get informed that you've got to go fight Joanna. It's a stress for anybody. It would take any joy and celebration. All the things things went from really fun to things just got really serious. Let's hone in on it. And I only bring that because Rose did it and she did it immediately. Tough spot to be in. She did it and she did it immediately. And she won. Okay. I guess people were wrong. I guess it wasn't just she caught her. I guess it wasn't she just upset her. And I guess it wasn't that she just got lucky. Turns out that she's really good. But you fast forward the table a little bit of time. Rose ends up in the exact same spot. She goes out there, she starches quickly and easily, Wei Li, to which got dismissed as unlucky, upset, and she caught her. So then what happens? She has to go and do it again. This glorious and victorious moment, all the air gets sucked out of the bloom because things get real serious when you find out you're going to get locked in there with a pissed off Wei Li. And Rose goes out and she does it again. Turns out it wasn't just an upset, it wasn't just a catch, and it wasn't just a lucky shot. Now, that's extremely relevant what I'm saying. Because I do not believe many of us are predicting that Asparza's next defense is going to be against Rose. And you can hang your hat on that you're a reasonable person and you understand the timeline and chill, you're right on everything, but that fight was terrible and therefore she's not going to get to hell with that. If that would have been a back and forth battle and Asparza left with a strap shrouded in controversy, with an audience on their feet proclaiming it was the greatest fight of all time. Rose is not going to get the shot. Not immediately and not next. How come? I don't have the answer to that, guys. This is not a conspiracy. I'm not like trying to bring you into, I don't have the answer either. I don't know. There's something about it. She's not. A lot of competition in that weight class. A lot of ways for Rose to have Rose's next fight be a championship fight, just not be against Carla. Carla's going to have a very hard time with the competition there, as anybody would. Like, Joanna's a really tough fight, and Whaley's a really tough fight, and the next up-and-comer's a really tough fight, and where the hell is Tatiana Suarez, and is she returning to the division? Like, there's all sorts of questions where Rose's next match could be for the title. But we all know, without being told by any level of authority, that Rose's next match for the title is not going to be Carla's next match and Carla's first defense of the title. How come? Please do not bring up the match, because it's not true. It's an argument that you could rest on, but it wasn't going to be true in any scenario. Even though she did that for somebody else, even though she did that a second time for somebody else. And it's not Carla that's going to stop it, by the way. Carla's got a wrestler's mindset. Carla for sure would return the favor. Carla understands that she's champion because she got to fight for the championship. Like, she gets it. She would give it to Rose. It's you guys. You guys aren't going to demand that Rose and Carla, and that we redo it. You're not going to make the same push on behalf of Rose that you did to Rose, not only once, but twice with Ioana and Waylee. How come? How come? What is going on there? What is the reason for that? And I'll tell you, there was something interesting that came of that match, Carla versus, versus Rose, which is how do you score it? A lot of people were upset with the judges. A lot of people did defer back to, hey, first off, we don't know what happened. And that old rule that, you, you know, to beat the champion, you've really got to beat the champion. And nobody beat either one, and it, it should have gone to Rose. That's just not the rules. But that phenomenon does exist. That is a piece of psychology. 
within all of you, within me somewhere, within the pun, and of course within the judges, but they didn't do it that night. And the first two rounds and the way they were scored was brought to my attention. I didn't see rounds three, four, and five. That's out there. I didn't see it, but I saw the first two. And the first two both went to Carla. That surprises me. It surprises me. And one of the reasons that I would not quest these judges, but I would love to hear from some judges, this has never been done. There, there's no precedence. There was nothing to look back on. You're going to go back to Shamrock versus Dan Severn. It's the only time we've seen that little of activity. Fast, fast forward from that, which at that time, I'm not certain had judges. Maybe they did. I mean, I'm going back to 19, late 1993, early 1994. Fast forward and you had Engano versus Derek Lewis. And that was also a thing of two guys staring at each other, but it's got to go some way, right? So when you have nobody touching each other, and then there's also a hierarchy of what you're supposed to look for. First, which is damage. Amateur boxing, that's very different. If I touch you five times and you touch me one time, I win. But in professional boxing, if you touch me five times and nothing happens and I hit you one time and I hurt you or I put you down or I... I win. I win the round because damage first. After damage, I believe it goes to octagon control, which means in the first round where nobody touched each other, the damage doesn't exist. Now you got to go to octagon control. How do you... What do you do there? Nobody's wrong, but what is it that you saw? I would have suggested for you guys going into the third round because the first two were unforeseen disasters, but unforeseen, no precedent, we, no vision in your mind, no training, no expertise, nothing to refer to, that the judges would have gone, okay, it's a 10-9 after the first five minutes, okay, it's a 10-9, I've got to mark somebody, whoever I marked, and then not be confident, not know if that was the right thing. Part of you wishing you could get your eraser out and do it the other way. Well, now you have the opportunity to fix that. You just have the opportunity to hedge that. Whoever you marked in the first round, you now mark the other person in the second round. We're even going into the third. I would have predicted that for you. And I think in most scenarios, I would have been completely right. I think the psychology that I just laid out for you, many of you are going to relate to and go, yeah, that's a way to solve it. They didn't. They had it for Carla. I thought that that was kind of interesting. I don't fault it. I don't fault anybody in that entire thing. I would want to see and hear because it would be an opportunity to learn about a scenario that had never played out before. So Carla wins. Everybody's upset with her. She doesn't have this great moment. And I've seen that a million times. Two guys fight. I can remember back to a night. It was Anderson Silva versus Damian Maya. And all the heat goes on to Anderson. But the rest of us are looking and going, well, two guys were out there. If Anderson didn't do anything, that must mean by default that Damian did it. The first time I ever saw this was Matt Lindland versus Phil Baroni. Matt Lindland, boring. Supposed to be this boring guy. And Phil Baroni is supposed to be this super exciting guy. And when I say, like, this, this is an actual dialogue that people were accepting. They go out there and they fought each other. And the story after was how dull... The fight was because of Matt Lindland, but how great it was because of Phil Peroni. I just don't understand how we get there. It was the two guys against each other doing the same thing. Point being, I don't think we were right to fault the judges. I don't know that we're right to fault Carla or right to fault Rose or blame it on one of them. I have seen contests 
where one guy runs away. And matter of fact, I've seen 50 of them. It was every single time Floyd Mayweather fought. Every single time that Floyd fought, if the opponent did what Floyd did, you have two guys running away from each other. But I didn't see that here. I didn't see Rose refusing to engage. And I didn't see Carla refusing to engage. There was something about distance. The setups were there. The plans were there. The strikes were even exerted. They all missed. We're having an argument about two inches. Two inches was the problem in that fight being fun to watch and easy to score or being confusing to watch and confusing to score. It's interesting. And no one's at fault. I didn't love it any more than you guys did. But as we do look back on it as a way of learning and moving forward, I think it would be compelling to hear from a judge, whether it was one that actually worked that night or just one within the industry, what is the rule there? What is the lesson we learned? And if we do see it again, the audience, us, what is it we need to understand about scoring a fight like that? Let's relook at Tony Ferguson's performance, right? Because it, it was very different. It was a very different battle that each of those guys had. Tony Ferguson, Michael Chandler. Michael Chandler had to get his hand raised. He had to win. It would have hurt Chandler to go to a decision. It would have hurt Chandler a lot if it was a split decision. And this is still assuming Chandler wins. It just would have. In perception, whether it affected his rank or not. In perception, it would have changed a lot of things. Like Chandler really needed to go out and win. Tony did not. Tony needed to look good. Tony needed, if he could win a round, huge success. He would win the fight, massive upset. I think it was a three and a half or even a four to one underdog when this thing went off. But Tony was playing a different game. Tony's litmus test and what he needed to do, prove and show to our community, was very different than what Chandler needed to do, prove and show. Tony succeeded. I do not have the scorecards in front of me. That's out there somewhere. I don't have it. I think Tony won the first round. I mean, that's official one way or the other, right? It's not our opinion at this point. That either happened or it did. I think Tony won the first round. I think he should have won the first round. Now, stay with me on this. It's important that you understand the takedown, while that looks to be a really big deal to the fight fan, the threat of the takedown is the danger. The threat of the takedown is much more dangerous than the actual action of the takedown. How does that pertain? Well, I'll tell you why. Tony possibly has never looked this good on his feet, at least not in a first round before. He has not been as effective on his feet, particularly in a first round, for about three years. Why Tony looks so good on his feet? Now, there was a new face in Tony's quarter. Did you guys happen to notice that? Is that something you even pay attention to? If you do and you did, then you saw it. There was a new face. Who was that guy? Well, that was Tony's old college wrestling coach. And Tony spoke very openly to the media leading into this fight that he's not thrilled with the way he's been performing, that he needs to get back to his roots. And he talked about the wrestling. He talked about bringing in this coach. He talked about what he's working on in the practice room. Now, before you think, Chael, seems like a waste of time. Tony did not wrestle offensively at all, and he did not successfully wrestle defensively. That's the physical side. Mentally, Tony believed he could stop the takedown. 
It's very important that you understand this. If you want to know why Tony's strikes were all landing for the first time in a period of time, because the first time in a period of time, he was not worried about the takedown. And don't think you need to correct me. Well, Tony couldn't stop him, and Chandler only went for one, and Chandler got him down. I'm talking about the psychology side of it. Tony did not have a worry of the threat of the takedown here. Play this game with me. Say you guys, really good wrestler. You, personally, you're a good wrestler. You've never boxed a day in your life. You've never been to a boxing gym. You've never put gloves on. You've never put a mouthpiece in. You're going to go into a gym. You're going to go spar with a boxer. And the boxer's really good at boxing. You're going to go do that. You're going to think, this is going to be terrible. What a terrible experience. Okay, now let's do that exact same game, except we add a rule, which is we tell the boxer, hey, you guys are going to spar and it's just going to be boxing. But him, he, you can do a takedown. If he wants to, he can take you down. You're still not likely to get the best of the boxer, right? This isn't a miracle that happens, but I will share with you, your experience in that sparring session will be very, very different, favoring you. The offense and the output of the boxer, if he has to worry about the threat of a potential takedown, we have seen a number, very excellent kickboxers and boxers come over to our sport. We have seen them not only dominate them, we have seen them lose within the very first round. And before you go, yeah, they got taken down and pounded out and they didn't know what they were doing. No, no, no. They got knocked out, lots of them, quickly. Much more successful, much more decorated, pure strikers have been knocked out in the very first round. Why? Well, it's the threat. It's the threat of the takedown, the fear of the unknown, the anxiousness of going somewhere that you don't want the fight to be. And it will change. It will change your reactions. It will change what you're looking for. It will change how you move. It will change your own output. The threat of a takedown was eliminated. Tony, right or wrong, believed he was right that he did not have a threat of a takedown by Chandler, which is why all of those strikes were landing. Just so you understand that. If anybody looks back on Tony, I mean, there were some really good things that Tony did here. And what was going to happen in that fight and where it was going to go? Right. I mean, it was one of those kicks. Nobody could take that shot. And the crowd was on their feet and people have called, that's the greatest knockout that I've ever seen. Eh, you don't know yourself very well. Like to kick a guy in the face is anything but super impressive. Any big knockout that you have that brings a crowd to his feet and people are shocked and guys like Chaler talk about it days later, it's not the actual technique that did it. It's not even the reaction to the technique, right? Which in this case was Tony Lane there for a scary and uncomfortable amount of time. That's not actually what it was. What has those huge knockouts that get remembered for generations or even broken down and, and put on highlight reels is 100% predicated on what happened prior, which only means was the knockout a surprise? This knockout was a huge surprise. The reason it was a surprise is because Tony was doing so well. I cannot prove for you. There, there's proof is out there. I just don't have, I cannot prove for you that Tony was winning the fight, but I think that I'm right. I think that he won the first round. So when you come out for the start of the second, you think it's going to be rinse and repeat and more of the same, which it should be, right? Two guys doing the same thing. You'd be very reasonable to believe you're going to get an extension. You're going to get more of the same. You're going to repeat what you've already seen, and then you don't. Boom, kick to the face, fight is over, dramatic fashion. It's what dreams are made of. But before we do that, and we are right to give Chandler the credit, and we are right that Chandler dealt with a lot, and we are right that Chandler had a strategy. Chandler deserves all the shining of his wheels that he's getting. I just think Tony did something really good too. I do, guys, I do. I think Tony really went out there and did something well, even when he got underneath Chandler. 
watching him using those elbows, watching how Tony brings his knees inside. Like, that'll mean a lot to the people that really understand jiu-jitsu and fighting what they're seeing, but that's just not what most guys do. That's very abnormal. That's Tony. That's Tony at his best when he's out there being creative. He's out there being mysterious. He's out there being different. He's combining grappling with strikes. Like, it's really rare. But what do you do with Tony now? I think the answer is uh, Dan Hooker. And the only reason I'm not begging that it be Dan Hooker and I get my way is I've got inside information. I know that Hooker's name is being associated with the turn of return of Conor McGregor. I like that match. And many people have said that Tony Ferguson should take his oars out of the water. Go and take a break and come back. You're still a top 10 guy. You're only fighting the absolute best. Let's revisit this thing. All of those are true. All of those are true. But you've now removed options from the table. In fairness, looking at everything, which would include never doing it again, that's when you've kept all options on the table. And no fighter will determine the end of their career based on the performance or the outcome of their last contest, but perhaps they should. No fighter will ever talk about, I'm done, until 20 other people have said it first, and the fighters push through it and reassured, and one more guy, like, there's just a process. But there's also a time where everybody is going to have their last one. There is a time, even within success, that a fighter is eligible to raise his hand and say thank you all for the memories and goodbye. It's just not how it's done, right? It turns into, this is who I am, this is what I do, this is my identity. Oh, and by the way, it's my job. Somebody's paying me to do it. I'm eligible. I'm going to go do it. Like, that. that's a normal part of it. That I don't begrudge at all. I'm just pointing out for you that it does exist. And everything needs to be looked at. And as hard and sad as it is, and as much as nobody wants to go out, unless they go out with a victory, who does? You could probably find them, but the meaningful guys, the main eventers, the top of the bill guys, it's been done by Lennox Lewis, it's been done by George St. Pierre. Who else? And please don't throw Mayweather on that list, because Mayweather's still popping up here and there. It doesn't appear to be done. One of those things, I'm not calling for anybody's retirement. I'm certainly not calling for Tony's. I am supportive of the idea that all options are on the table, and if you're trying to have that conversation, you're trying to have it in a mature action, then make sure that you truly put all options on the table, which include, I'm done. All right, guys, that's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. And if you haven't done so yet, please remember to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, leave the show a five-star rating and review. Go do that. And I'll be back to you on Friday. Until then, I'm Chael Sonnen, and you are welcome.